Inspired by the C.S. Lewis book, Mere Christianity, this podcast is about why I believe what I believe. Welcome to Bear Christianity. Last week was my most popular episode ever. Most Christians have an opinion regarding Calvinism and Arminianism, but do they truly understand what each side believes? I certainly did not, and that is why I'm sharing what I've learned with you. So before we even get started today, uh, uh, several disclaimers. So again, this Calvinism-Arminianism predestination, free will type of debate is an in-house discussion, an in-family discussion. This is within the Christian family. This means that I'm assuming the Bible is considered the Word of God and has the ultimate authority. Uh, It even has authority over uh, mankind's logical reasoning. Now, I'm not trying to say that the Bible is illogical, but um, I am saying that the Bible does um, make claims of things that we just can't quite wrap our minds around. So that's what I'm trying to say. And and if you haven't listened to last week's episode, it's kind of a must listen to before you come to this one. Uh, at the very end, I played a John MacArthur clip uh, that talks about this, of, of how we we can't quite fully wrap our heads around everything in the Bible. Now, this week, I am presenting positively the case for Calvinism. So I will be speaking as though I'm a Calvinist and I'm defending what I believe. Next week, I will do the same thing with Arminianism. So I will speak as though I'm an an Arminian and defend what I believe. Just a quick break in the action. I actually recorded all of the information on Calvinism in one week, but it was so long that I decided to split it into two episodes. Okay, now back to the show. Too many times in this Calvinist-Arminian discussion, it turns into an attack of the other side rather than a defense of one's own position. And so in this episode, I'm not going to be mentioning Arminian theology. I'm not like attacking Arminian theology in this episode. I just want to explain what Calvinists believe. And then next week, I want to explain what Arminians believe, because sometimes they are uh, it's called a straw man argument, where a Calvinist will will say, "Well, Arminians believe this," and then they'll they'll go about you know d- destroying that belief, um, and and vice versa. Arminians do the same thing with Calvinists, and so that's called a straw man argument. You're sort of building up this this straw man, and then and then beating them up and tearing them down. You're not actually going at what what Calvinists or Arminians claim to believe, and so that's what I'm trying to fight against here. So I want to. It, sort of take the role of a Calvinist and explain what they believe from their point of view, and then next week I'll do the same thing with Arminianism. So hopefully that's helpful, and and uh, I want to certainly present, uh, to be very truthful, and and I am striving to be accurate in everything that I say from both sides. Um, so each section today will start with a quote from some of the well-known Calvinist confessions of the faith. I'm mainly going to be using the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and it's in modern English. Uh, Occasionally, I will also reference the Westminster Confession of Faith. So the Westminster Confession of Faith came first. It's a Presbyterian confession. The London Baptist Confession is derived from the Westminster Confession, but there's some differences between Baptist and Presbyterian, so there there are some differences. But a lot of times, the language is, is almost identical. Now, these confessions of faith are organized statements of belief, and so at the end of each section, there are several Bible verses that support each of the you know sentences in these, and so these are great to read for for 
uh, just to to find out the core beliefs of any main denomination or whatever. And so I'm using these as sort of a, a baseline, a, a grounding for uh, each of the points of Calvinism. And so uh, just see the episode notes for a link to these resources. There's a, a really good, uh, the, the London Baptist Confession, it's laid out on the website really nice where all the verses are hyperlinked, and actually you can just like hover over the verse, and a little window pops up that, that allows you to read it. So instead of having to constantly uh, flip through and find all these verses that support all the claims, you just hover over it and you can read the verse for yourself. So it makes it really easy to sort of see how they're defending their positions. Now, again, it is my desire to accurately represent each side, and, and there are differences even within Calvinism and Arminianism. So my goal is to represent what I think, just in my research and, and reading and listening to debates, my goal is to represent what I think is the majority view of Calvinist, and then next week, again, the majority view of Arminians. But even within those two differences, that there's lots of little differences, and, and sometimes people will take, um, take different beliefs, and so it, it, it gets complicated. And so I am trying to simplify it, and again, I'm just sort of laying those disclaimers out there. Um, honestly, it, there's probably going to be a lot of questions that you may have on different things that I talk about in these following weeks, and feel free to contact me if you have corrections for me. Again, it is my goal, my desire to represent, to be extremely accurate. And so um, if, if I'm not, if you feel like that there's a correction that needs to be made, please email me. I would, I would love to get that and, um, and go from there. Also, if you have questions, I would love to have questions, things that bother you, things that maybe I said, or just maybe something that you've had a general question about in this area for a long time. I would love to have questions. A, a Q&A type of episode would be super easy, So because I could just line up questions and and prepare my answers, and then just sort of read off the question and answer. That that would take a lot of pressure off me. So I would love to have enough questions to do a Q&A type episode on Calvinism and Arminianism, maybe towards the, the end of this little series. So you can send those comments or questions to bearchristianity at gmail.com, uh, you can also message me on Instagram at the Real Bear Martin. Now, this episode of Bear Christianity is sponsored by Cancel That Car. Nowadays, anyone or anything could be canceled. Why not cancel cars? Have you ever been waiting in a long line of traffic, passing several warning signs that say right lane closed ahead, only to see one lone car passing everybody to squeeze in at the front of the line? Put that finger to better use. Grab your phone and cancel that car. With the Cancel That Car app, you can identify selfish drivers. If enough people in your surrounding area cancel the same car, lasers from outer space will blast that car to smithereens. Bear Christianity users get three free months by using the coupon code Look at this moron. And for just $1,000 a month, you can access bonus features which include the ability to cancel cars with those super bright headlights that blind everyone else. Cars that turn on their flashers anytime it rains. And if you see a car with a driver who's all alone but still wearing a mask, cancel that car. Cancel that car. Together, we can achieve more. Details may vary. Some restrictions may apply. Calvinism is typically explained using the acronym TULIP, T-U-L-I-P. Now, many Calvinists do not really like this acronym because some of the phrases used can easily be misunderstood. Nonetheless, 
The TULIP acronym is so well known that they typically use it, but just clarify as necessary. And so uh, that's what I'll do today. Now, TULIP, T-U-L-I-P, the T stands for total depravity or sometimes called total inability. The U is unconditional election. The L is limited atonement or sometimes called particular redemption. The I is irresistible grace or sometimes called effectual calling. And then the P is perseverance of the saints. So first off, total depravity. And so here's a quote, a fairly lengthy quote from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. So it says this, this is in chapter six. God created humanity upright and perfect. He gave them a righteous law that would have led to life if they had kept it, but threatened death if they broke it. Yet they did not remain for long in this position of honor. Satan used the craftiness of the serpent to seduce Eve, who then seduced Adam. Adam acted without any outside compulsion and deliberately transgressed the law of their creation and the command given to them by eating the forbidden fruit. God was pleased in keeping with his wise and holy counsel to permit this act, because he had purposed to direct it for his own glory. Now, it continues, By this sin our first parents fell from their original righteousness and communion with God. We fell in them, and through this death came upon all. So all became dead in sin and completely defiled in all the capabilities and parts of soul and body. Okay? So I know that's a lengthy quote. Another term for this, this fall, but because of Adam and Eve's sin, we are all fallen. That's a, a common way of expressing that we are all in sin. And so another term for this is called original sin. So original sin is a term referring to the universal defect in human nature caused by the fall. This entails the loss of original righteousness and the distortion of the image of God. So the Bible tells us that we are created in the image of God, but because of sin, that image is distorted. So the sin of Adam and Eve had lasting effects on all of mankind. They are our representatives, and we would have sinned against God as well. So just in case you think this concept is unfair, that is, that the, the sin of one man or, or Adam and Eve bring condemnation on everybody, let me read you a few verses. It's Romans 5, 18 through 19. Therefore, as one trespass or sin led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so one man being the representative for all of us is how we are saved. So yes, we are fallen because of the sin of Adam and Eve. Now, we, we can't just blame Adam and Eve for everything. We willingly choose to sin as well. But we are fallen because of the sin of Adam and Eve. So by, by one man, sin entered the world. But by Jesus Christ, one man, we are forgiven of our sins. Here's a quote from the Westminster Confession of Faith. Man, by his fall into a state of sin, hath wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. So it gets a little bit wordy, but basically this, this idea of total depravity or total inability is basically saying that because of sin, we are now unable to do anything to merit our own salvation. Sin has corrupted us in every way, 
And so we cannot do anything that is spiritually good that, that warrants God's favor. Now, this does not mean that all people are equally bad. It does not mean that any man is as bad as he possibly could be. So, so total depravity, sometimes that, that's, that's why people don't like that phrase, because it can sometimes be misunderstood that it means that everybody is just as evil as they possibly can be. That's not what this, this is talking about. It, it also does not mean that mankind is incapable of any virtuous act. So we are made in the image of God, and that image has been distorted. But, but so, so mankind can still do virtuous acts, but as, and so we can still do good things. But as far as doing good things that, um, that merit our salvation, that earn our favor back to God, we cannot do that uh, by in, in and of ourselves. Now, what does this total depravity or total inability mean? It means that man is under the curse of sin, that man is wholly unable to love God or do anything meriting salvation. And it it means that the corruption, so Calvinists will say this, corruption is extensive, this depravity, this inability. Sin corrupts everything, but not not all the way. So again, man, mankind is not as evil as he possibly could be. He's not constantly doing every horrible thing that he possibly could do. But this, this sin nature corrupts every aspect of life. So it corrupts our minds and the way we think. It corrupts our bodies. We, we age and we have disease. Um, so it corrupts everything about creation. Now, this total inability is not an inability to make choices but an inability to choose God, to choose the things that God desires. And so this, this part is very, very important. It's, it's not that mankind can't choose God, it's that he does not want to choose God. Our, our sin nature uh, basically deviates our thinking so that we desire, we desire to go against God. And so, his, so man is free in a sense that he can, he can choose what he wants. The problem is that we do not want God because of sin. Uh, Lorraine Bettner, who is a, a popular Calvinist theologian, um, he says, how can, he re- how can man repent of his sin when he loves it? And how can he come to God when he hates God? Paul Washer is a missionary and a pastor, evangelist. Uh, in addressing some pastors, he says this, as the night turns black as pitch, the stars come out in the fullness of their glory. When you refuse to teach the radical depravity, that, that's another way of saying total depravity or total inability of man, it is impossible to bring glory to God, his Christ, and his cross. The cross of Jesus Christ and its glory is most magnified when it is placed in front of the backdrop of our depravity. He then references Luke 7.47, which speaks of a sinful woman who washed Jesus' feet with her tears and then wiped them with her hair. Jesus says her sins were many, yet she showed Jesus much more love than the others in the room. She loved him much because she had been forgiven of so much. That is the concept of total inability. This may sound strange to you that, that, um, that people in their natural state hate God because you may have people that you've, you've interacted with that when they're saved, they, they turn and desire God and, and they love God and they want to follow God. And so what Calvinists are saying is that the, the very, um, that very action is a gift of God. God has sort of changed their hearts. So we're going to get into that, but that's, that's kind of the direction that we're going. 
So fallen people, people in sin, are morally blind. They choose sin over obedience and evil over good. So a Christian who's changed by God will eventually reach a state where they, they prefer God. They prefer the things of God. They choose good over evil. So the fallen man prefers evil so much that it is so attractive to him compared to the holy things of God that, that he is unable to choose God. The Christian in heaven, in their glorified condition, will not sin. But why is that? Why, why will we not sin in heaven as a Christian? It's not because God is forcing us not to sin. It's not that we, that we turn into robots once we get to heaven, and that way we don't have to worry about sin. Uh, it's because we, are, we have been changed. We are a new creation, and we are so attracted to the holy things of God and so despise sin that we, we essentially will always choose good over evil every time. So both the fallen man and the Christian are making choices, but their desires are so one-sided that they always choose, the, the, the fallen man always chooses evil, the, the Christian always chooses good. Now again, when I'm talking about in heaven, in our glorified state, in, in, on earth, even though we are a Christian, we still struggle with, with sin. Also, just know that when I use these, these words good and evil, I'm referring to spiritual good or, or like the love of God. Obviously, again, a fallen sinner may choose to help an old lady change a tire on the side of the road, but they will not choose God in and of themselves. So here's some scriptural support for this, this idea of total depravity, total inability. John 3.19, and this is the judgment, the light, that is Jesus, has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The next verse is Romans 8, 7 through 8, but I need to explain something really quick. In this verse, it's going to talk about the flesh, those who are in the flesh. That is talking about sinful mankind those who are still fallen in sin. Now, there are other verses in the Bible, in, in Ezekiel 36, for instance, that you'll hear that God has removed our heart of stone and given us a heart of flesh. In that context, flesh is a good thing. But in the verse I'm about to read, Romans 8, flesh is a, a bad thing. It is talking about sin. Uh, so here's the verse, Romans 8, 7 through 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. So if you're in the flesh, you cannot submit to God's law. And then to continue the verse, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Romans 3, 10 through 12, as it is written, this is a citation from Psalm 14 and uh, 53, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. And then 2 Corinthians five seventeen. therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, there are tons of, of Bible verse references uh, that, that the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith will give for this idea of total depravity. I've just sort of picked out some highlights there. The next, uh, the next part in our tulip here is the U, unconditional election. So here's our quote from the London Baptist Confession of Faith. By God's decree and for the demonstration of His glory, some human beings and angels are predestined or foreordained to eternal life through Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. Others are left to live in their sin, leading to their just condemnation to the praise of God's glorious justice. So, those people who are predestined to life were chosen by God before the foundation of the world according to His eternal and unchangeable purpose and the secret counsel and good pleasure of His will. He chose them in Christ for eternal glory, purely as a result of His free grace and love, without anything else about them serving as a condition or cause moving Him to do so. So, this this unconditional election, this is the free choice of God. It is not God is not looking at man and and we are somehow uh, influencing his decision. It is the free choice of God. Here's what's important to realize about this concept of unconditional election. It's that mercy and grace are not requirements of God. Most of us tend to believe that God is not good unless he gives mercy to everyone. If mercy was required by God, it would no longer be considered mercy. And so that's a, that's a huge point that, that Calvinism tries to stress, that God's mercy and his grace, are it, it's completely his free choice to dispense that. He, God doesn't have to save anybody. He can rightfully uh, condemn us all to hell because of sin. He doesn't have to save anybody, and he would be perfectly just in that condemnation of all people. So it is, is simply his mercy and grace alone that anyone is saved. And so we, we may be asking, why doesn't God save everybody? And the answer would be, I don't know. And also, Romans 9, through 24, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And so here, basically, it's saying that Paul is, is almost um, asking a rhetorical question, or, you know, what if, what if God, desiring to, to show all of his attributes, and this is also a key thing in Calvinism, that they want to glorify all of God's attributes, and they believe that um, that in Calvinism, that is, that is what's happening, is that God is saving some people and he is demonstrating his love and his mercy. He is also justly condemning some people to hell, and in that way, he is demonstrating his wrath and all of these and, and, and his just punishment of sin. And so all of these attributes of God are glorified. And so that's what that verse is talking about. What if God, desiring to show both of those sides, both of those attributes, uh, has punished some to hell and and saved some, and so again, I, this Romans nine is a super difficult <laughs> chapter um, to read, and there's there's lots of different interpretations of that. Um, but you know, again, if you're asking that question, why doesn't God save everybody? That would that would be a typical Calvinist answer. 
uh, also the London Baptist Confession says this uh, other, when he, when it's talking about people that are not saved. Others are left to live in their sin, leading to their just condemnation, to the praise of his glorious justice. Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24 says this, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, what, what things are we talking about here? God's love, his steadfast love, his justice, and his righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Now, the right attitude, when we, when we think about unconditional election, the right attitude is absolute humility on our part. A, a correct question would be, why would God save me? What what is it about me that, that made God want to save me? And if the answer is, I don't know, then therefore the, the total mercy and grace of God is, is glorified. And so if you're thinking, why in the world would God save me? That's the correct attitude. And this all starts with the understanding of total inability. It's our pride which causes us to think that we are better than we truly are. And so as we, as we sort of see ourselves for, for who we truly are in, in our sin, then that is what makes the, the grace and the mercy of God in saving us beautiful. Now, the, uh, the wrong attitude is, why doesn't God save everybody? He must not be a loving God. He must not be a good God. And so that would be the wrong, the wrong attitude, the wrong way of looking at this, this idea of unconditional election. And so sometimes critics, like Arminians, they will accuse the, the Calvinist of, of saying that God is not good and God is not loving. Again, we'll, we'll tackle all these issues later on because I want to stay with a positive, um, uh, positive presentation of what Calvinism believes. Now, some scriptural support for unconditional election. It's Ephesians 1, 4 through 5. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Romans eight twenty nine through 30, it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, a major concept and, and big-time dispute between Calvinist and Arminianist is how to interpret the word foreknew in this verse. So, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined and then uh, called and justified and glorified. So, this foreknew is sort of what, what kicks off uh, this chain of events. And so, how do we interpret foreknew? Uh, there's two basic options, an Arminian view and, and a Calvinist view. And so I'll talk more about it and sort of give the Arminian defense later, um, but just to mention it, so we, we have some contrast here, uh, basically for new, the Arminian view would be God is sort of looking through time and he knows who is going to choose him, who would choose him in faith. And so from, from that point of view, God is then predestining and, and that sort of thing. Now, the other interpretation of for new is that uh, this this word foreknew is God entering into a relationship with beforehand, or God is choosing. Calvinists will say that that foreknew 
is is an action. It is an active verb. It is something God is doing. And so the this this interpretation is derived um, from looking at other ways that foreknow is used in the Bible or the word know. So Romans eleven two. So just a few chapters later, it says God has not rejected His people whom He foreknew. That's talking about the the nation of Israel. Um, in Genesis four one. Now Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived. So this this concept of to know someone can also have a a special sort of uh, intimate relationship type of factor to it. Um, in Amos three two, God says this to the nation of Israel: "You only have I known." of all the families of the earth. Now, does God know about other families, other tribes, other nations? Absolutely, he created them. So there's something different about the way that this word is being used. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. And also, in, in, this is in the Old Testament, Amos 3, 2, uh, but the Greek version of the Old Testament called the Septuagint the, the Greek word or the Greek root there is the same as the, the, the word for know in uh, Romans 8. So that's kind of the Calvinist defense of that, of that word. So God is choosing beforehand uh, who, who his elect are, and then from there he predestines them to be conformed to the image of his Son, he calls them out of their sin, he justifies them, and he glorifies them. In Romans 9, 10 through 13, says this, and not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born, and had done nothing, neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. Rebekah was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. And then a, a few verses down it says, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. First Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5a says this, for we know brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 1 Peter 2.9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Acts 13.48, and when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Now, the next one is uh, in the TULIP acronym is limited atonement, and also sometimes called particular redemption. Now, this is probably the most controversial of the five points of Calvinism. Some Christians refer to themselves as four-point Calvinist, and they reject this one, limited atonement. So, um, in the London Baptist Confession of Faith, this is in chapter 8, titled Christ the Mediator, It says this, to all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he certainly and effectually applies it and imparts it. He intercedes for them, unites them to himself by his spirit, and reveals to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation. He persuades them to believe and obey and governs their hearts by his word and spirit. He overcomes all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom using methods and ways that are perfectly consistent with his wonderful and unsearchable governance. All these things are by free and absolute grace, apart from any condition for obtaining it that is foreseen in them. Basically, the whole concept behind limited atonement or particular redemption is that Jesus Christ's work on the cross actually saves people. In Arminianism, 
Jesus dies for the sins of the whole world, but that is not uh, activated, basically, until one believes. Essentially, uh, Jesus walks into a bank and paid off everyone's debt, but you've got to believe he did it before your debt is actually considered paid off. And so Jesus' atonement basically makes, in Arminianism, and I'll talk about this more next week, but in Jesus' Jesus' atonement makes it possible for everyone to be saved, but it doesn't actually save anybody. It makes it possible, but doesn't actually save. In Calvinism, again, they're, 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 they're trying to glorify God in all of salvation. And so in Calvinism, Jesus actually saves. He doesn't make it possible for everyone to be saved. Jesus actually saves the elect. And so Jesus pays the sin debt of all the elect. As the London Baptist Confession says, Christ certainly and effectually applies and imparts it. That is eternal redemption. And then he intercedes for them. So salvation in Calvinism is 100% success for the Lord. It is a work of the Trinity to save those whom the Lord chose before the foundation of the world. God does not fail ever. And so Jesus is not trying to save everybody in the sense that he's doing his best, but people are just too stubborn to come to him. Uh, So again, if we understand total inability, then limited atonement makes more sense. So no one would ever choose to come to Jesus because we are all blind in our sin. If we are going to be saved from our sins, it's because the Lord saves us. The Father gives the elect to Jesus, Jesus dies for their sins, and the Holy Spirit works in their hearts so that they have faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior. So salvation is the the perfect work of the Trinity, and the Trinity never fails. The Lord does not fail in what he wants to accomplish. So that's the the main um, thought behind this idea of limited atonement. Now, some other comments. Uh, Limited atonement does not mean that Jesus' blood could only pay off a certain amount of debt. And so he saves all the people he can, but his death just cannot save everyone. No, everyone who looks to Jesus for salvation will be saved. But, on the, but the only reason they ever look is because God is working in their heart and giving them the desire to look. He's, he's making them a new creation that starts to desire the things of God rather than sin. Another comment on limited atonement. If Jesus truly paid for everybody's sin, then why does anybody go to hell? This is, this is an argument that Calvinists will often make against Arminianism, because if Jesus actually paid for that sin, then why does anybody go to hell? And they'll say this, is unbelief a sin? If so, then didn't Jesus pay for that sin on the cross as well? So it's kind of like double jeopardy, um, or, or let's go back to the bank idea. It would be like Jesus paying off everyone's debt, but the bank still sends bills to certain people. And so if the debt has been paid, then the debt is paid, whether the person acknowledges it or not. So there's some different ways of, of, of looking at that, uh, this idea of limited atonement. But basically, if Jesus truly died for all the sins of the world, then why does anyone go to hell? And both Calvinists and Arminians would agree that not everyone goes to heaven. Uh, the, the idea that everyone, every human being who ever lived will be saved is, is a um, concept called universalism, and there are some Christians who believe that, but in general, uh, Calvinists and Arminians both reject that idea. I think it's pretty clear in the Bible that some people are, are, uh, go to hell. Now, some scriptural support for this idea of limited atonement. 
Um, Isaiah 53, 11 through 12. So again, Isaiah is written in the Old Testament. It's a prophecy about Jesus. It says this, Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Matthew twenty twenty eight. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Uh, why does it say many there instead of all? John six thirty seven. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Again, this idea of Jesus is the perfect Savior, and, and, and also that the Father has a, a certain people and the elect that he gives to the Son to save. John 10, 25-30, Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. And so again, the, the Father gives a, the sheep to Jesus. Jesus per, dies for the sheep, they, and no one snatches them out of his hand. It, it's a perfect work of the Trinity. Romans 8, 33-35, Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Basically, if, if God's trying to save you, you will be saved. Romans 8, 38 through 39, so just a little bit further down, it says, Paul says this, For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Hebrews 7, 24 through 25, it says this, But, but Jesus, he holds his priesthood permanently. Jesus is the ultimate high priest. So continuing with the verse, because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost or completely those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now, this word intercede or intercession has been in several of these, these last verses that I've read. Uh, this last verse in Hebrews says, Christ always lives to make intercession for them. That is uh, the people who draw near to God. Now, an intercessor is someone who goes before someone on your behalf. More specifically, the intercession Jesus makes for us is compared to the intercession of the high priest in the Old Testament. The high priest was the intercessor who went before God with the sacrifice once a year on the Day of Atonement. And so this sacrifice, that the high priest presents the sacrifice on behalf of all of the people of Israel. Now, the blood of this sacrifice covered over or atoned for the sin of the people, but it was only symbolic. Uh, I think it was episode, maybe, let's see, one, maybe episode four of this podcast. I, I talked a lot about the Day of Atonement and, and sacrifices and that sort of thing. Anyway, check it out. Um, anyway, the blood of this sacrifice 
It covers over or atones for the sin of the people. It's only symbolic. The blood of bulls and goats can never take away sin. But in the book of Hebrews, the author describes Jesus as the ultimate high priest who comes before God the Father offering his own blood for the forgiveness of our sins. Now, the blood of Jesus is the only blood that can remove sin. Jesus is interceding for us. And so again, this logic behind the idea of limited atonement is this. Jesus is the Son of God and the second person in the Trinity. Are we to think that Jesus is interceding for every human being who ever lived and that God the Father does not accept Jesus' intercession for them? So basically, Jesus is is pleading with God the Father, interceding for everyone, and God the Father only saves some. Um, So that's where this idea of limited atonement is. It's a perfect work. Jesus is a perfect Savior, and his intercession for for his sheep, for, for the people that God has given him, his intercession is perfect. And so Calvinist view of limited atonement is something that honors Jesus Christ in proclaiming him a perfect high priest, a perfect Savior. His death actually accomplished something. It, it didn't just make something possible, but now it's up to us to make the most of the situation. Um, it actually saved. So that's the, the mindset of the Calvinist. All right, well, I'm going to wrap it up right there. So this will be the end of part one. Next week, I will cover the I and the P for the TULIP acronym. That's Irresistible Grace and the Perseverance of the Saints. So that'll be the five points of Calvinism. And then I'll have some other sort of closing remarks uh, from the Calvinistic perspective. Then I'll move on to the Arminian side of things. And so I hope you're enjoying these episodes. For our closing verse, it's Luke 19.10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. (laughs) 